Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Thank you, Father, for your scriptures. Thank you, Jesus, for choosing to suffer and die for us. Lord, I pray that uh, you would lead Tom today as he uh, uh, teaches us, and I pray that you'd open our eyes and lead us to understand this passage, Father. Thank you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Good morning. In the last uh, few weeks as I was pondering this, this passage, I made a concerted effort to enhance my very limited city dwellers' understanding of sheep and shepherds. I reread uh, Philip Keller's little book from the 70s called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. I also uh, read through a fairly informative website called Sheep 101. (laughs) But the most illuminating source that I came across was a a two-part message by John MacArthur on this very passage. Uh, I learned that Brother MacArthur actually did a little stint as as a shepherd when he was in high school one summer. But he said that most of what he knows on the subject of sheep and shepherding, he learned from a very exhaustive book written by one of the foremost authorities on shepherding in one of the most sheep-dense countries of the world, which is New Zealand. It would take uh, too long for me to relate all of the the fascinating details about sheep (laughs) that uh, John MacArthur presented in that message, but I want to give you just a few highlights that I consider to be very relevant to this important passage. Sheep are some of the most utterly defenseless animals in existence. They have teeth and hooves, but they can't bite, scratch, or kick with sufficient force to earn even a little respect from a wolf, cougar, or bear. They can run, but not fast enough to outrun any of their known predators. The most predictable defense mechanism used by sheep when a wolf shows up looking for a quick lunch is not to put up a good fight or even to scatter and run. It is instead to huddle together and see who gets eaten first. For a predator, the only thing more convenient than defenseless prey is an entire flock of defenseless prey. Decisions, decisions. It's like walking into the kitchen and watching the world's biggest sandwich make itself. Without a shepherd to defend them, sheep are helplessly vulnerable to those who would do them harm. Sheep also happen to be the most helpless of all livestock when it comes to finding their way back to the fold. If one of them gets separated, they have virtually no homing mechanism. Bees can find their hive from miles away. Even lowly ants don't have any trouble getting back to their nests. But sheep quite literally can't find their way home to save their lives. If one of them gets separated from the flock, the shepherd is that sheep's only hope of being restored to the flock. Sheep are the ultimate creatures of habit. 
If the shepherd doesn't lead them from one pasture to the next, they'll just stay right in one place and they will overgraze that ground until all that's left is dirt and then they'll try to eat the dirt. They rely on their shepherd to guide them to good green pastures. And unlike every other animal in the sheep's ecosystem, sheep cannot smell or sense the presence of water. If there's a grove of trees separating a flock of sheep from a nice creek full of pure mountain water half a mile away, they will likely die of thirst before they stumble on to that creek unless their shepherd leads them to that good water. But even if a flock of sheep are home on the range with plenty of water and there are no predators about looking for their next lambwitch, things can still get very dicey. The combination of very oily lanolin and accumulated dirt and debris on a heavily woolen sheep makes their wool so dense and heavy that some can't even get back on their feet if they've fallen over onto their back. A sheep in that mode is called a cast sheep. Now I'm going to show you a picture. It's it's kind of hard to bear, so if you're squeamish or such, you might want to avert your eyes. Here's a cast sheep. If the shepherd doesn't come and flip that sheep over, he'll just lay there with his legs stuck up in the air and die. Because of these impressive limitations... <laughs> Sheep are some of the most dependent creatures in existence. Sheep without a shepherd are, to use John MacArthur's words, dead meat. All of which makes them a marvelous metaphor for us in our relationship to God. I think it's safe to say that when God gives us such a vivid and tangible picture and then uses it as often and as pervasively as this one shows up in the Bible in both Testaments, he probably intends for us to learn something from it. And if there's one big principle about ourselves that we learn from watching sheep and shepherds, it is that we are helplessly and utterly dependent upon our Good Shepherd. But here, as I see it, is the real kicker where this morning's passage is concerned. After I listened twice through Brother MacArthur's detailed and often humorous description of how utterly helpless sheep are, I immediately then reread 1 Peter 5 again, and uh, this realization hit me like a lightning bolt. If you are one of God's sheep, and that's exactly what... God calls you if you belong to Christ. You know that all of those serious limitations that we just talked about are as true of every other sheep in your flock as they are of you. So how would you like it if your shepherd decided to delegate the leadership of your flock to some of your fellow sheep? If the chief shepherd who had taken such great care of you and protected you from every predator, handed over the responsibility of oversight and care for the flock to some of the sheep in your flock, that would raise a few questions in your mind, wouldn't it? (laughs) 
you'd be thinking, okay, since those guys can't defend themselves any better than I can, since they can't find water any better than I can, since they can't shear me when my wool gets excessively long and dry and matted, since they're just as likely as I am to end up on their backs with their feet in the air starving to death, what good are they as leaders? Well, there is one thing that a sheep can do for you and for the rest of the flock that's actually helpful. They can be really, really good at following the chief shepherd. There's the sharp, that is the sharp focus of Peter's instructions to under-shepherds in the flock of Jesus Christ here in these first four verses of 1 Peter 5. Peter gives us the what and the how for serving as elders, as under-shepherds in the flock of God. He tells us what God's assignment to those shepherds is, and then he tells us how they are to go about fulfilling it. Now, if you think this passage is only for elders, please don't think that. Because the principles that Peter is presenting that apply to elders then affect those who are under who are required to be under the leadership of elders. And there are principles that transfer in many ways to other relationships within the body of Christ, as we've seen in the preceding chapters. There's actually only one imperative, one direct command in verses 1 through 4. That command is given to elders, and it is shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Every word of that very concise command is absolutely critical. First, shepherds are supposed to shepherd. The task of shepherding is essentially twofold. To provide for and to protect God's flock. King David, long before he was actually coronated as king over Israel, when he was still a teenage boy told Saul about his experience with the protective role of a shepherd just before David went up against the Philistine giant, Goliath. King Saul said to David, Son, you're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. Never mind that he's about 11 feet tall. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and I attacked him and I rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and I struck him and I killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. It's mighty big talk for a teenage boy. You might be thinking, well, okay, that's all well and good for a vigorous young man like David, but (laughs) how's the sheep going to protect other sheep? David actually clarifies that in his very next sentence. He said, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. 
See, David was an under-shepherd. He always thought of himself as an under-shepherd. When he went out against Goliath to defend the people of God, he knew that he was utterly defenseless apart from God's enablement and provision. It wasn't that teenage boy's great strength or uncanny accuracy with a sling and a stone that felled that giant or that had ensured David's victory over the predators that threatened his flock. It was the protective hand of God upon whom David utterly depended all the time. It was the hand of David's chief shepherd. As elders, we are called to be constantly vigilant, to guard God's flock against the false teachers and dividers and deceivers and accusers who would love to sneak in among the brethren and cripple or snatch up sheep in God's flock. But our powerful fortification against all such threats is not found at all in us as elders. Because if left to our own devices, we are as helpless and defenseless as those that we are called to protect. Our rock, our refuge, our defender is our chief shepherd. So the single most determinative thing that we do as elders to protect God's flock is to stay very, very close to our chief shepherd all the time. The same is true when it comes to our responsibility as under-shepherds to provide for, to care for, to tend to God's flock. We're called to nurture His flock, to lovingly care for His sheep, to tend to their wounds, to ensure that those who are injured or sick get their necessary food and water, to seek out those who have wandered off and to bring them back to the fold. But we must always do so knowing that the health and well-being of God's flock doesn't come from us. Anytime we drift toward thinking that it does come from us, we're on very dangerous ground. Beloved, we're not here to create dependence on us. God appointed us to create and to nurture and to enhance dependence, the dependence of every saint on the chief shepherd. So when we open our mouths in an effort to teach or counsel or encourage or correct a member of God's flock or all the members of God's flock, we must do as Peter instructed at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 4 when he said, at 4.11, when he said, whoever speaks, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Our words are only useful to the extent that they point God's sheep to His words. And in the same way, when we tend to the hurts and needs of the people of God, we must do as Peter instructed in the rest of that same verse, 1 Peter 4.11. He said, whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs all the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen, as we celebrated in this morning's worship. First, elders must shepherd. We must strive always to protect 
and care for the flock of God, but we must do so in absolute dependence on the one who is the only real source of protection and provision that exists. That means that the one activity that most equips us to keep our sacred assignment is for us to stay very, very close to our chief shepherd. Secondly, we must be keenly aware that the flock that God has allotted to our charge is His flock, not ours. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. One pastor I had the privilege to know when I was much younger in the Lord got invited once to a big lunch gathering for senior pastors in his city. The city was not Dallas. At the luncheon, he found himself seated right beside a very influential, widely published pastor of a big, big church in that same city. After a few minutes, that very influential pastor leaned over to my friend and he said, So, do you run a tight ship in your church? I do in mine. My friend was dumbfounded by that question and that declaration. But he needed no time at all to deliberate over his response. He simply leaned back over toward that preacher and he said, It's not my church. And then with his right index finger, he pointed upward and he said, It's his. That was the end of the conversation. In Acts 20, Paul called the elders of the church at Ephesus to come and meet with him at a town called Miletus as he was making his journey toward Jerusalem where he would be arrested and taken in chains to Rome. When Paul met with that group of elders thinking it might likely be the last time he would ever see them, he said to them, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The first thing we need to see there is that elders are not appointed by people. God uses people as instruments, as agents for the appointment of elders, but God superintends that process. He says He's the one who appoints elders. Secondly, He says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. The church of God which He bought with his own blood. As of this year, 2016, I've been part of this local body at Community Bible Chapel for 30 years. But when I was asked to become an elder, all of the other elders have been part of this body longer than I have. And if there's one thing that was and continues to be infinitely clear to me about the dear brothers at whose side I serve this body... It is that they are all very keenly aware of whose church this is. They consider it a sacred and very sobering stewardship to act as under-shepherds of the one who poured out his life's blood to purchase the sheep in this flock as his treasured possession forever. I said that every word of this command 
the elders to shepherd the flock of God among you is critical, and that includes the last two words, among you. If you remove the qualifying clauses in the first two verses of 1 Peter 5, here's what you get. Therefore, I urge the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God among you. Flock is singular, elders is plural, among you shows up twice. There are a couple of important things going on there that I, I believe we need to not miss. I believe Peter repeats the phrase among you to make the point that the elders appointed by God in each local community of believers are called to shepherd the flock of which they are a part. God's design for headship in His church is for leadership to occur at the local level. This simple principle is borne out in verse 3 where Peter refers to those allotted to your charge. See, the elders at Community Bible Chapel are not called to oversee the body of believers at McKinney Bible Church or vice versa. We, the elders whom God has placed among you, are called to be God's under-shepherds of the flock of God that is among us. The flock of which we are a part. When I hear some believers these days saying things like, hmm, my church is on the internet, I have to wonder what kind of flock they consider themselves to be part of. A flock in which none of the sheep have ever even seen each other? And certainly haven't met the guy who's doing the teaching. Biblical eldership is eldership over a local body of believers, a church community whose elders and deacons are part of that community. You notice that one of the qualifications of elders and deacons is that they know the flock and be known by the flock. By the way, since the ministry of the Word is one of the key assignments for elders, according to Acts 6, I have to wonder if that key responsibility of local eldership has suffered some abuse. In our modern age of satellite churches with physically absent jumbotron preachers and instant worldwide access to the teaching ministries of preachers and elders who will never know or be known by most of those who are receiving their teaching. Most. I'm not saying, beloved, that God doesn't use that technology, that He does not use such approaches to teaching and preaching to minister to His saints. That's not what I'm saying. I listen personally to several sermons every single week. I read many articles and books by men whose love for the Word and whose love for the Lord I hold in great esteem. And both you and I, Lord willing, benefit from that exposure. But I am saying that we need to be thoughtful about leading God's flock God's way. And the flock needs to be thoughtful about submitting to that leadership on God's terms, not on man's. We don't get to shuffle the deck and substitute a whole different way of doing things for God's way. To me, it's, this is mostly about emphasis. It's about what we major in. I'm not condemning any kind of ministry. 
hope you understand that. Just because we can do something doesn't mean it's how God would have us do it, and it doesn't mean we're getting the balance right. There's a new phenomenon in today's church that has never existed at anywhere near the level that it does right now. Faithful, gifted preachers and teachers of the Word find themselves compared regularly with the greatest Christian orators of our day whose preaching is readily available to every member of the congregations on the radio and online with a couple of clicks. Many believers who listen to Top Gun preachers on the radio skip the sermons in their own churches. This is statistically provable. And they skip them because their own preachers don't measure up for oratorical skill or entertainment value with those that they can access online. To me, that's a little like the local preacher's version of what some of your wives experience when you walk through the checkout line with them at the grocery store and see all the airbrushed eye candy on the magazine covers. I think often of many accounts that I've read of how the great revivalist preacher Jonathan Edwards deliberately read his sermon manuscripts in a monotone through Coke bottle bottom glasses. He deliberately constrained his passion in the pulpit in order to avoid bringing the flesh into his preaching. And God stirred up a great revival in his day and through that man. If the last two minutes of this message sounded self-serving, all I can say to you, beloved, is that my purpose is not to defend or to elevate myself. It is my earnest desire that we follow our chief shepherd on his terms, not on ours. It's my earnest desire that this local body, that this body of believers be sold out to God's way of doing things. We're in this together, beloved. You and me and the elders and the deacons in this body, we're in this together. We're a flock. And I want to make sure we don't miss the issue of plurality in the role of elders, designed by the way that also applies to deacons. It's very, very important to recognize that in God's plan for delegating headship over his sheep, the elders who serve the flock of God at His bidding, do so as a group of men working together. Every local flock has multiple elders. It has always been that way by God's design. In Titus 1.5, Paul told Titus to appoint elders, plural, in every city. He didn't say appoint an elder in every city. In James 5.14, James writes this to the brethren. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them come and pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Call for the elders of the church. Now the clear assumption there is that there were multiple elders appointed over each local body of believers who lived close enough together that they could gather at the home of a sick member of the body and pray for him. And they didn't have dart rail, guys. 
There are very good reasons for plurality in God's design for leadership over His body. Jesus prepared and left on this earth 11 men to carry out His work after He ascended to the right hand of His Father. Those 11 apostles added Matthias to replace Judas who had defected to the enemy and died at His own hand. Then the resurrected Jesus appointed one more apostle, Paul. Jesus did not entrust the oversight of his ongoing work on this earth to one apostle. He entrusted that work to several and he sent the Holy Spirit to enable them to do that work. Following that clear pattern, the apostles, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, entrusted the role of under-shepherd in every community of believers to multiple elders and required that they be men in whose lives the presence and power of the Holy Spirit was manifestly present. No one person on Community Bible Chapel's Board of Elders ever acts unilaterally on any significant decision that affects this body. My voice is just one of eight voices among the elders, and mine carries no more authority than any of the other seven. The same holds true for every one of those other seven elders. And please hear me, beloved, please hear me when I say that. We are well aware that that is not the most efficient way to get things done as men measure efficiency. But it is without question the most effective way to get things done God's way in God's church by God's design. There's only one commander of the global church of God. There is only one head. Singularity of leadership occurs only at the top. Since there is nothing about us that makes us adequate in ourselves to oversee our fellow sheep in the flock of God. That means that the only way that we are going to avoid undermining or sabotaging our chief shepherd's agenda is if we remain steadfastly and humbly dependent upon Him. Satan is hard at work to derail us from remaining steadfastly and humbly dependent upon our chief shepherd. So it's a real problem if there's only one man in the under-shepherd's role. See, plurality ensures accountability. But let's be clear. <laughs> the accountability that we as elders have to one another, the accountability that we as elders have to one another is only valuable to the extent that we are holding one another accountable to Him. See, it's not about pleasing each other. It's not about passing one another's tests of scrutiny. It's about passing His. That's what we are to hold one another accountable for. I think there's a lot of misdirection in Christian circles, at least mis a failure of emphasis when it comes to the issue of accountability. I have no beef with accountability groups. I'm part of at least three of them that lovingly encourage me to remain true to God's Word and to live for the will of God and not for the lusts of men. And I value that accountability. 
But the notion of making ourselves accountable to other people has been very badly oversold. It makes too much of men and too little of God, and it makes way too little of the Holy Spirit. Sheep holding sheep accountable to sheep (laughs) does not move the Good Shepherd's agenda very far down the pasture. Sheep holding sheep accountable to the true shepherd, that keeps all the sheep on the right paths with the right focus, doing the right things. It's our accountability to him that matters. So in our accountability groups, let's make sure that's what we're about. In our elders' meetings, that means we should never spend a whole lot of time debating the merits of each other's logic. (laughs) We should be talking about the merits of God's logic, the mind of Christ revealed in the Word of God. And that happens. That's... I believe that approach dominates. But it's a good warning to us. It's a good reminder to us. All right, so first, we whom God has appointed as under shepherds are called to shepherd His flock. Secondly, we are, we are called to shepherd His flock. <laughs> and finally, we are called to shepherd His flock together as a group of elders holding each other always accountable to His will and His way that is revealed exclusively by His Spirit through His Word. That's the what. Now let's consider the how. Peter lays out the how of God's assignment to elders by means of three very concise, not this, but this statements. Each of these statements draws a stark contrast between how elders are not to shepherd the flock of God and how they are to shepherd His flock. First, Peter says elders are to shepherd God's flock, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. It's not a duty, it's a delight. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have responsibilities. It means we're supposed to delight in doing them. In times of ease, times in which the church enjoys relative favor with the culture, being an elder might be seen as a fairly comfortable assignment at least until you start to become intimately acquainted with the real needs of your flock and begin to share in their struggles. But in times of intense persecution against the the church, times like those in which Peter wrote this epistle, times like those that I believe are coming like a freight train upon the church in the West, There were no doubt some elders and will be some elders who want out of the assignment once they get a good taste of it. Peter makes it clear that such men are not to remain in the role. Whatever the cause of his dissatisfaction with the assignment, any man who serves as an elder only because he feels duty-bound to do so should politely step down. Peter's second not this, but this statement is not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. We need to understand what this is getting at. In 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. 
If you construe the double honor in that passage to be referring to something other than financial compensation, you will be misconstruing the passage because that's what the passage is talking about. Paul is talking about the church's responsibility to provide respectable financial compensation to those elders whose devotion to the task of shepherding keeps them from providing for their financial needs by other means. I've heard some say that the Apostle Paul never accepted financial support for his ministry. That is not true. There were certain churches from whom Paul steadfastly refused to receive any income, most notably the church at Corinth, and he had good reasons related to what was going on in that church. If you're dealing with people who are fleshly and materialistic, you need to make a point. And that's what Paul was doing. But he certainly did accept financial provision for himself and his co-workers from other churches such as those in Macedonia. But there's a critical difference, brothers and sisters, between an elder who on the one hand graciously accepts God's provision through the flock and an elder who on the other hand treats the flock of God as a gravy train to make his life affluent and comfortable. There's a lot of that going on. Throughout the history of the church, there have been men who proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, as Paul said in Philippians 1.17. I don't usually name names, but this guy had it coming. Some of you may remember Robert Tilton, who used to have his name plastered on a water tower in Farmer's Branch in letters larger than the name of his church. Steve Blow, a columnist with the Dallas Morning News, smoked out the fact that Robert Tilton was living in a multi-million dollar mansion in California and flying back and forth every weekend to preach at his church while pretending to live here. All on his church's dime. That's just an extreme version of a cancer that takes many forms in many, many churches. And guys, it's not getting better, it's getting worse. I hate to think of what God will do to discipline a redeemed man who treats the sacred stewardship of overseeing God's flock as a way to enhance his own reputation or line his own pockets. God calls elders to shepherd the flock of God with eagerness. Eagerness for what? Eagerness to serve God's people as Christ served Him. Eagerness that says, Here I am, Lord. Send me to address the needs that You've set before me in Your church, no matter what it costs me. In Peter's third, not this, but this statement, he declares that elders are to shepherd the flock of God not by lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. The word for lord it over here is the same word Jesus used in Mark 10, right after his disciples had been arguing about who was going to get to be the greatest among them in his kingdom. (laughs) He said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. 
but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Biblical leadership in the body of Christ is not about elders getting their way. It's about elders being servants of the people of God on God's terms, which often means not getting our way. There have been at least a few times during my years in this church, even before I was an elder, when I've heard complaints raised against the elders here that they are not leading decisively, that they're not providing the kind of directive leadership that they should, or that they're not following through as vigorously or as quickly as they should on an important matter that has been raised by the body. Now, I'm certainly not saying that all such criticisms have been unfounded. Not saying that. The hardest part for you as a member of the local body having to submit to the leadership of your elders and deacons is that those elders and deacons suffer from the same maladies spiritually that you do. They struggle against the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Same stuff. They struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil just like you do. So, you know what that means? (laughs) They're going to commit some of the same sins that you do. Wives, do your husbands always get it right? Just ask him. There is no question that we who serve as elders falter and stumble at times in the task of leading this body and sometimes we just flat out sin. But brothers and sisters, the reason we don't act like military commanders is because God has explicitly told us not to. And the reason He's told us not to is because we're not qualified to lead that way. We're not even adequate in ourselves to be shepherds. What we are both qualified and enabled to do by the amazing grace of God is to be very good followers of the one true shepherd of the sheep and to constantly and prayerfully point His sheep to Him so that we may all become very good followers of our good shepherd. I know of one pastor and elder who, during the decades of his preaching career, went from being a humble teacher of the Word to being a militaristic tyrant. All of the men in his congregation were eventually required to bring yellow notepads to church every Sunday and to be seen taking notes when this man was preaching. If you had the audacity to fall asleep during one of his message, messages, he would interrupt the message and have an usher wake you up and escort you out of the auditorium. And let me tell you, when, when you treat the task of sermon preparation as a full-time job, that kind of strictly enforced attentiveness during the teaching time can start to look pretty good. So as you leave the auditorium this morning, you'll find boxes of yellow notepads at each exit. Seriously. 
That kind of approach to leadership denies the simple reality that neither the guy in the pulpit nor any other elder of the flock is a lord or a general. We are your fellow sheep, called by God to tend the needs of His flock as excellent followers of the chief shepherd. We're not called to be pragmatists. We're not called to be efficiency experts. We're not called to practice management by objectives. We're not sovereign over the hearts of men and women and wayward teenagers and stubborn children. We are called to shepherd the flock of God as utterly dependent followers of the one chief shepherd. That means there will be times when from your perspective we as elders are taking too long to resolve an issue or we're not being as directive as it seems to you that we should. We understand those frustrations. But quite often what may look to you like foot dragging or lack of assertiveness or even plain old laziness is actually none of the above. Elders and deacons act as agents of the God who declares Himself to be compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. The same God who, by the way, patiently works to sanctify you day by day over the entire duration of your life on this earth and who will then complete that work in an instant on glorification day. The same God who waited 400 years to judge the Canaanites. The same God who commands all of us to correct one another always with gentleness, with much forbearance, with great humility, and above all, with the same steadfast love that we have received from Him. Sometimes, beloved, that will not be a very efficient way to bring about change. Are you okay with that? You need to be okay with that. Because that's God's design headship and submission in his body. We're not making this stuff up. One of the things that that means in spades is we earnestly ask you to pray for the elders and deacons in this body. We need your prayers all the time. All the time. Because the task, the task is impossible if we're not plugged into the one who's able to do it. Pray that God would not allow your elders and deacons ever to stray far from the chief shepherd. Finally, in verse 4, Peter presents a marvelous promise to under-shepherds who shepherd well. To those elders who heed his instructions given here and act on them, he says this, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Our good shepherd has a very great reward in store for his under-shepherds who have followed him well, being good examples to the beloved sheep that he allotted to our charge for a brief time. The unfading crown of glory that awaits those faithful under-shepherds is not not about gaining eternal advantage over the rest of the sheep. 
on that last day when God praises my brother Kerry and my brother Greg and many other brothers and sisters in this body for their faithfulness in encouraging a mess like me to follow hard after Christ during the time that we were both on this earth, the praise that Kerry and Greg and, the, and others of you receive will not be at my expense. This is not a zero-sum game. I'd be fine if it were at my expense. But that's not the way it works. I do believe in differential rewards. That is, that God will reward most bountifully those who have served Him most faithfully. But there won't be anyone, there won't be anyone standing in the presence of God on that last day who feels shortchanged. Nobody will be questioning our chief shepherd's graciousness or goodness or justness or abundant, abundant generosity. Nobody. He will be glorified by all that He does on that day and by everything that He has ever done. And that will be all that concerns us. And it should matter a whole lot to us. It should matter a whole lot to us to hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Precisely because that means that our lives will have been honoring to Him. That's what my brother Braxton talked about in the worship this morning. It should matter a whole lot to us right now that the things we do every single day be found honoring in His sight. That's why we're here. God has a special assignment for His under-shepherds, but the principles that Peter gives us here carry over to all of God's sheep. We are all called to do the things that build up His body, that move every member of His flock toward maturity in Christ. And beloved, we are all called to follow hard after our chief shepherd. Dear Father, I pray that, that we would be defined by our calling by our identity in Christ and our calling to follow Christ as good followers of a good shepherd, the good shepherd, perfect shepherd. Lord, this is a wonderful, wonderful assignment. It's a wonderful assignment. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' precious name, amen.